Hey, friends, before we get into the episode, to get our new ebook on Pedo Communion, the Church, and the Gospel by Peter Lightheart, sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race at the link in the show notes. Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're pressing on in our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to be looking at the theme of the church and the people of God walking with a limp as seen in the life of Israel. He'll also tie this into what he talked about in the previous Life of Jacob episode with the church being kings and priests. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan looking at the life of Jacob. We have been camping here at Peniel, where Jacob wrestles with who turns out to be the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the older brother. See, we're made in the image of God. Human beings are made in the image of God, and particularly in the image of the second person of God. And we are sons of God. And altogether, we are a daughter of God. As individuals, we're all sons of God. We're all brothers. The New Testament addresses the church as a collection of brothers. You ladies are all brothers. And altogether, we're a bride or a daughter. We're not individually brides of Christ. That's a corporate image. And that's all in the area of sonship. So we're like the Spirit, we're like the Father, but preeminently we're like the Son. In theology, we say all of God does all that God does. So that whenever God does anything, all three persons are involved. But while it's true that all of God does all that God does, it's also true that in any action of God, one of the persons is preeminent. So some things are preeminently fatherly, some things are preeminently the Word, some things are preeminently the Spirit's work. And human beings as images of God are preeminently like the second person of God. What would you say angels are preeminently like? They're preeminently like the third person of God. Because they're spirit, they're called flames of fire. The imagery around angels is all the imagery that's around the Holy Spirit. So... Those are useful things, and when you think about it, keep in mind, when Jacob wrestles with this angel, it turns out this is the angel of the Lord who is actually the second person of the Trinity coming as an angel, and he's the older brother. And that's who he's been wrestling with right along. He's been wrestling with his father, his father-in-law, his brother, and all along it was the second person of God wrestling with him. We're in this Cain and Abel type story here. And Cain's been trying to kill Abel. But Abel has not been killed because he has learned wisdom. Not that Abel didn't have wisdom, but that's the thing that we're dealing with here. After 97 years, Jacob is finally ready for God to stop wrestling with him and to start doing something else to him. (laughs) The wrestling match was just preliminary. Now that you're trained... Now we go out and do the real thing. Now that I've been wrestling with you, set off here in this ring, a wrestling match takes place in a ring. It's a defined space. It has boundaries. You get in here and there's rules. And you're wrestling. Once the wrestling match is over, you go outside the ring into life. 
there are any boundaries. The issues are a lot tougher. Not playing by rules anymore. You've got to learn these rules and learn the techniques and then go out here and make applications in a wider way. That's the transition in Jacob's life now. He's leaving the ring, which has been tough, but now he realizes, hey, <laughs> that was just preliminary. Now he's got this new situation. And we've been thinking about that. This is what in theology is called teaching the Bible and stopping for a common place, a place where you talk about a certain theme for a while before you move on to the text. And we got to move on to this text, so we got to finish this up. Jacob wrestles with this angel. And the angel, Jesus, God, gives him a limp on the inside of his thigh. We had made the point that this is an extension of circumcision. Circumcision gives you a quick wound that makes you a priest. This gives you a more permanent disabling wound that is related to kingship. And we had looked at passages that talk about this. And I want to try to finish up that theme this morning. We had made the point last time that Esau, the Edomites, are also circumcised. But they don't get the foot wound. They don't get the thigh wound. That the limp has to do with humility. Circumcision has to do with being made a priest. If you are limping, you're going to have to be careful. You can't go up and fight like you used to. The whole bunch of guys are coming at you and you can't hardly stand without a staff. You're in trouble and you need some subtlety and wisdom. Direct action that you had maybe when you were younger isn't going to work. And the Edomites and Esau in the Bible have this meaning of being a counterfeit priestly nation. A nation that's priestly or claims to be and has circumcision but that does not have humility, and so who hold their priesthood in pride and arrogance. And we were talking about how the book of Obadiah pictures them as dwelling in the rocks, in the cleft of the rock, like Moses and Elijah were in the cleft of the rock, and having a counterfeit kind of wisdom and claiming to be God's people. Well, the true church doesn't look all that powerful. This frustrates people. Because our enemies don't limp, but their head is crushed. So they can't endure. If you want to compare it, you go back to Genesis 3. One side gets a foot wound, which is very troublesome. Your foot hurts every day. You never know when you're going to slip and hurt it again. It means you can't walk very fast. You go through the wilderness. You make three steps forward and two steps back. And the adversary are all standing out there on two feet, and they look like they're just real strong, shoulder to shoulder, marching at you. And we look like we're all over the place in different denominations, fighting over this, that, and the other. But their head is crushed. Despite appearances, they don't have any overall organization. Whereas despite appearances, we do have complete organization because our head is alive. Jesus is alive. And by the Holy Spirit, all of this chaos that we see in the church is actually perfectly organized and synchronized development towards something in the future. It's just that we can't see it. It's like if you made a mosaic, and we're going to take this entire floor here and put a mosaic on it using little tiles, an eighth of an inch square, all different colors. And I had a map up here. And I go over here and I put a little red 
one-eighth of an inch by one-eighth by an inch square tile here, and a little blue one over here, and a green one over here, and another red one next to it. You would have no idea what the pattern is. I would, because I've got a diagram that tells me I'm painting by numbers, or I'm making a mosaic by numbers. I'm putting a little bit here and a little bit there. But I'm not starting in one corner and developing. I'm doing a little bit over here in China, a little bit over here in the Presbyterian Church, a little bit over here in the Catholic Church, a little bit over here in this Pentecostal group, and a little bit over here raising up some Mormons in order to challenge us to think new about other things we hadn't thought about before, and over here raising up communism to force us to think about things that we wouldn't normally think about. I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And those of us who are near to it, in this world, we don't see the pattern. But there is a pattern. But from our perspective, it looks like chaos. That's the part of the limpingness of the church, and it means that we don't appear powerful. But we have a head who's all this is organized. It's being done in exactly the right order. Meanwhile, they look like they're powerful, but their head has been crushed, and they are not actually Organized, and you see this in that anytime you get wicked people together, they wind up fighting each other. Because that never happens in the church. Not happens to us because we still have the flesh, but it happens to them preeminently. It's always the Tower of Babel over and over again. It's Deja Babel all over again every time wicked try to do anything. That's why the conspiracy view of history isn't really true. Because it really is true that the Russian communists and the Chinese communists couldn't get along because Mao Zedong had ambitions, and so did Stalin. They might close ranks occasionally against us, but they're not going to get along. And Ho Chi Minh had ambitions, and that's why he wouldn't get along with Mao Zedong. The wicked don't get along with each other except very briefly because each one has his own ambitions to play God. So while it can look as if Esau is coming out with 400 men all in a rank, and you've got this little group of women and kids and servants who are used to being farmers, and you're limping along. The fact is, Esau is not well organized, and they won't endure. And we are organized, and we will endure. We limp, but our head is resurrected, and our limp is a large dance from the viewpoint of eternity. Jacob's limp means he cannot fight any longer. He can no longer be a warrior or even much of a worker, and he must govern his sons, and they must fight and work. So there's a progression here from obedient priestly son to ruling king. Up to this time, Jacob has been the son. He's been son, and now he becomes father. Up to this point in our story, we have not had but one little teeny weeny story about any of Jacob's sons. And that was that Reuben, as a little boy, found some mandrakes. That's it. In terms of dealing with sons, Jacob has not been a father. Up to this point, he's still a son. He was Isaac's son, and he was Laban's son-in-law under Laban. And for a long time, he was under Esau, who his older brother is representative of the father. He's been a son right along. But now this story is going to shift to where... Jacob acts as a father. You know, the next story we read, although it's about 15 years later in time, is about his sons defiling the men of Shechem, 
and what Jacob has to do dealing with his son. So there's a very definite movement from son to father here. And his son, as a young man, up to 97, Jacob is acting. He can wrestle. He can fight. He can work. Now, as an old guy, he has to work through his sons. They're the ones who are going to have to do it for better or worse. And they're not going to wrestle wisely, at least to start with. Joseph will. Joseph learns what it means to wrestle from Jacob, and he wrestles wisely. So the story picks up with him. But the other sons, they don't wrestle wisely. If you want to win the wrestling match, what you don't do is sleep with your father's concubine. That's not the way you inherit the kingdom. You don't take your father's things behind his back. If you want to wrestle wisely, you don't use the sign of circumcision as a way to massacre a bunch of people. That's not the way you wrestle wisely. You won't win the match that way. If you marry a Canaanite woman and have to be seduced by her dressed as a prostitute, that's not the way you wrestle wisely. You don't inherit the kingdom that way. You lose the kingdom that way. But if you are a good servant and a good worker, and when your master's wife tries to seduce you, you run away, that's the right way to wrestle. And you wind up ruling the world if you do that. So all of this is going to be transferred to the next group of sons, but some will learn and some won't. But for Jacob, he now becomes a ruler. He's no longer a servant. He's no longer a priest. Understand that priest means palace servant. So we can use that word priest as a large global term for this. But now he becomes a father. He becomes a ruler. He becomes a king in that sense. So we're moving from priesthood to kingship. And we talked about how the priest is the one who is a servant of the palace, who prepares food, who does exactly and only what is prescribed meticulously in the law. So we have in the book of Leviticus explicit details about how you're supposed to act as a priest. It's like learning to use a computer. You've got to key in exactly the right things if you want to get from A to Z in whatever operation you're trying to do. Your finger slips at one point, or you move that mouse and it touches the wrong thing, and you wind up going off somewhere else. You have explicit rules. You learn them after a while. You can do them with your eyes closed. All those priests, they could go through those sacrifices with their eyes closed. It wasn't that complicated. It was fairly simple. That's the priestly life. Kingly life is more difficult. You can be a perfectionist as a priest. You do exactly what's required, deviating neither to the left nor the right. The priest makes decisions between good and bad, between that which is perfect and that which is blemished. You have to have a perfect, unblemished animal, not a blemished one. A king does not have the luxury of making choices between good and evil, between perfect and imperfect. Government concerns the choices between lesser of two evils, always. Evils not being sin, but evils. You've got to make decisions about what do you do. Saddam Hussein has conquered Kuwait. Do we do anything about that? Or not? He says he's going to raise the price of oil. Is that justification for going over there and killing a bunch of his people? Or do we say, well, we'll just have to pay more for oil because that's not justification for going to war. Or he makes it plain he's going to conquer all those countries over there. And he's got dangerous weapons that he's developing. Now, is that justification? You decide because if you decide not to do anything, you've got an evil in the sense that a bad man is increasing his territory 
and the price of oil goes up and poor people in America can't afford to buy gasoline and so you have more people out of work and people's lives are diminished over here. But if you decide to go to war, that's an evil because you're going to take your tanks and you're going to kill 10 or 20,000 young men over there who are relatively innocent. They've just been enlisted by Saddam Hussein. We go over there and butcher them to keep the price of oil down or whatever. You've got to make a choice and it isn't a nice easy choice between blemished sheep and unblemished sheep or do I tithe 10% or do I not tithe? Those are nice white-black issues. But the kingly questions are not white-black issues. We have principles that we have to apply in subtle ways, and that's why when you move from the priestly period in Israel to the kingly period, you move from law to what? What do we call the literature around the king? Wisdom literature. God gives the law first so that we are trained in right and wrong, white and black, simple questions. We get down in our minds the standards. Then we get wisdom literature which starts to show us the subtleties. You don't get the standards down first, you can't move to wisdom. Once you've got the standards down, then you can be wise. And you can say, okay, there's this principle, there's this one. I have internalized this to the point where I can begin to see that's the way we ought to go, even though it'll be difficult. So that's what's happening with Jacob. That's what it means to go from being a son to a father, from a priest to a king. Priest? Priest was Isaac's position. He's a sacrifice and a priest. Jacob replaces Isaac. Jacob obeys his mother. He obeys Laban, but he obeys with skill. He begins to show kingly wisdom during his time of priestly servitude. You start to learn this kind of subtlety. Subtlety and wisdom. Think back to Isaac. Isaac obeys. Abraham says, son, Isaac is what, 17, 18? We need to go offer sacrifice here. And so, let's go. Isaac does it. I want you to carry the wood. I'm getting a little bit old here, so would you carry the wood? Okay, carry the wood. Abraham carries the fire. You never let your sacred fire go out. And they go up the hill. Abraham says, I hate to say this, son, but you're the sacrifice. Isaac says, well, I hate this, but I guess I'll have to be the sacrifice. So he cooperates. He obeys. It's amazing. Lies down, waits for the night. They probably talked about resurrection and everything else, but we're not told all that. We just see the obedience. So Isaac obeys. And he goes out. His father gets him a wife. He obeys. He likes her. So it works out great, but still he submits to the leadership of his father in finding a good girl. And I guess if he said, Rebecca's not the girl for me, they would have gone and found another one, but it didn't work out that way. So then he goes and works with the Philistines. And there's a certain amount of subtlety there in that he doesn't tell Abimelech who his wife is, but not a whole lot. They contest with him over wells, he moves to another one. They contest with him over wells, he moves to another one. They fight him over wells, and he moves to another one, and finally he gets an open place. Now, these aren't real difficult, subtle questions. Somebody fights you. He doesn't stay there and wrestle with them. He doesn't involve a lot of subtlety in trying to figure out how to deal with it. just moves on. See, this is all fairly simple here. These are simple-type decisions. If somebody's beating you up, you go someplace else. With Jacob, Jacob is trapped. He's trapped in the family with Esau. He's trapped with Laban. 
He doesn't have the choice when they fight with him to move somewhere else. He has to stay there and learn the subtleties of dealing with a blind and rebellious father, an outwardly glorious older brother, a wicked father-in-law, wives who are fighting with each other over having kids. These are tough questions. And when you wind up with 12 kids, you've got a lot more to worry about. You've got a lot more on your plate than if you just have two. So Jacob is forced into a situation of learning a whole lot more skill. I'm sure Isaac did too. But the text is calling attention to the simplicity of Isaac's kind of priestly life and the simplicity of the first part of Jacob's priestly life, which at the same time is preparing him more for a kingly type of thing later on because he's happened to learn this kind of subtlety and wisdom. And when he becomes a king here at Peniel, and God says, I'm not going to wrestle with you anymore. You are to the point where you need to be to come into the land and rule, so to speak. Then the things that he's learned during his years of service come into play. That subtlety. Now, what's a king? The king is a servant of God who rules in the land and who acts out of wisdom gained from studying the law. You remember the king is supposed to have a copy of the law copied out for him and have it read to him every day. So every day before the king goes to bed, the scribe comes in and reads him a chapter of Deuteronomy or Exodus, something to remind him of the rules that God set out, which are just a few things. It's not a complete law code. We studied all this a while back and you know it. But they are the things that if you think about them will set your mind on the right path. So even though the law doesn't say anything about water rights and water pollution, you begin to learn what would be involved if somebody came and complained about water pollution. The stream runs through my property, but they're peeing in the river up there upstream. And so I can't drink the water when it comes onto my property. Well, that happens everywhere in the world. And the Bible doesn't say anything about it. It's a common problem. But if you're the king or the judge and you've studied the rest of the law, you figure out that's wrong <laughs> and what the penalty would be for that particular malfeasance. The king acts out of wisdom gained from studying the law. And from his years of priestly service to Isaac and Laban, Jacob becomes a wise king who properly husbanded his flocks. He's gotten to that point. And now he has to manage his sons and act through them. It's hard to deal with sheep, but it's a lot harder to deal with a bunch of sons. And you can compare how David moves from being a shepherd to being somebody who deals with men. And he moves from being a warrior to being a commander over other men who are now the warriors. And I'm sure you've been taught this or thought about it, but I'll just remind you. Remember that David kills Goliath. And then what do we read later on about David's mighty men? Well, they're killing giants. Saul was afraid to kill a giant, even though Saul was himself a giant. He was a head taller than everybody else. David does, and then later on, you find lists of David's mighty men, and then it says there was another giant who had six toes and six fingers and all this, and we're told about these other giants that David's men kill. But David does it, and his men do it. He becomes a leader over other men who are following in his footsteps. They're his sons in this large sense. He starts with sheep, and then he learns from that how to do men. He starts as priest with sheep, under authority, under his father. 
He spends time under Saul. He's very much like Jacob. David is a parallel to Jacob. He spends time under Saul. He marries Saul's daughter. Saul is Laban. In fact, one of the symbols of Saul is a man named Nabal. Remember Nabal? What does Nabal mean? It means fool. And Nabal refuses to give anything to David and his men, and David decides to kill him. And Abigail comes out and appeals, and then Nabal is killed, and David winds up with Abigail, which was a mistake because he already had a wife. But at any rate, that story is largely positive. Well, compare the word Nabal with Laban. It's just the backwards. The same three letters run backwards. Laban, Nabal. So... Nabal is a Laban, Saul is a Laban, David is marrying Saul's daughter, he's being persecuted, he's having to go here and go there. The flock that David is getting, which consists of sheep that aren't pure white and goats that aren't pure black, in other words, it's a mixed flock, what does David's flock look like that he's getting during this period? It's made up of both Israelites and Gentiles, like Uriah the Hittite. It's a mixture. And plus, it's all these guys who don't have much property and who've been oppressed by Saul and who are running out to join David. So David's getting a flock out there, just as Jacob did. And then the story goes on from there. And just as Jacob becomes king, in a sense, as he moves back into the land, so David inherits the kingdom. And then he has to deal with his sons. And the sins of Jacob's sons are very much like the sins of David's sons. You've got... A rape scene in both stories. David's son actually rapes his sister, which is much worse than what happens here in Genesis where this Gentile Gentile boy gets excited and he's 15 and she's 14 and he makes a mistake. But it wouldn't have to be all that bad. We'll get to that story. But with David's story, it's much, much worse. And David has the same problem. He's got more than one wife and he's got sons from different wives who are fighting over things. And remember that Reuben sleeps with Jacob's concubine. And what do we read about Absalom? He slept with all David's concubines. And then, of course, we get Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt and we get Solomon. Afterwards, Solomon marries the daughter of Egypt and has worldwide influence. So you see there are many, many, many parallels. And when you see the parallels between David and Jacob, you see again how Jacob is becoming something like a king here. And he has to manage his sons. But there is something beyond priest and king. And that's prophet. And in the Bible history, we move from priestly period to kingly period to prophetic period. The prophetic era starts with Elijah and Elisha as they form the remnant covenant. There's a new covenant. And a prophet we will describe as a member of God's council who is consulted by God and who changes the world by his words alone. A king still acts directly. A priest acts directly with his hands. In other words, he takes hold of the sheep and does stuff with it. And when you're young, you deal with sheep. And maybe when you're a commander, you kick people around. But when you become a king in this limping sense, you have to tell other people what to do, but they're still doing it. David gives orders to his army, but the army still goes out and kills people. Or they build something. Or they work. But a prophet doesn't do anything himself, and he doesn't tell anybody to do anything. Not really. Occasionally he does, but not very often. 
He simply speaks a word that changes people's outlook on life and sets in motion a new way of thinking. What the prophets do, essentially, throughout, is to say that God is going to destroy the world and make a new one. I think we have the idea that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and these other books, that the prophets are coming and saying to Israel, God is angry, and if you don't shape up, he's going to judge you. But that's not the message of the prophets. If you look at it, what they say is, God is going to destroy this nation, but he will bring it to life again on the other side. The message of the prophets is to be faithful, not because that will help you avoid judgment, but be faithful because that will take you through the judgment to the resurrection on the other side. It's really a somewhat different message than what we think. That's why even after Josiah's reforms, God still says, because of the sins of Manasseh, I'm going to destroy this nation. That doesn't matter to me that you've had a reformation. I plan to destroy it all along, and I'm still going to do it. And he says, Jeremiah to him and says, look, I'm going to bring you to life again, but we're going to go through death first. You've got to go through death first. You can't be resurrected if you don't die. So... If we're going to do something better in the future, you've got to go through this process of the old thing being set aside. And that involves a little bit of a crisis. How big a crisis it is going to be is up to you, says Jeremiah. I'm putting all the world under Nebuchadnezzar. If you just submit, it'll be okay. Then he brings in Nebuchadnezzar and conquers the city because they won't submit. And Jeremiah says, hey, submit now and everything will be, I mean, you know, there'll just be a little crisis here. No, they won't submit. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back, conquers the city again, takes Jehoiakim off into exile. Jeremiah says, okay, now, just submit. And we'll still be experiencing some death in the sense that the nation isn't running its own affairs anymore, but there'll be resurrection on the other side. But they don't. So Nebuchadnezzar comes back and burns the city down. But how big a crisis it is depends on you, but there's going to be a crisis. And the prophet is the one who comes and says, this old world has to go, but a new world is going to come, and I'm going to tell you about it so that you start thinking about it, and your thinking, the way your mind has changed, is going to be part of what brings it in. And this was Abraham's position in the beginning, like God in Genesis 1. God in Genesis 1 is the original prophet who sets up the world. But Abraham has this position, and Abraham is the first person in the Bible who's ever called a prophet. And we're told a little bit about it here in Genesis 20, verse 7, where God tells Abimelech, the first Abimelech, return this man's wife, indeed he is a prophet, and he can intercede for you. A prophet is somebody who intercedes. Now, we have in our minds, because of our confessional tradition, that a priest is a mediator between God and man. Well, that's not really completely correct. A priest does mediate between God and man, so does a king, but the mediatorial function of carrying messages back and forth between God and man is primarily prophetic. A priest is primarily just a palace servant. He just says what God tells him to say. The prophet is the man who has the right to go into God's council. Here's a council up here, and here's us down here, and the prophet is the man who has a right to go up here and then take the message back down there. Priest is not primarily in that area. Priest is just a guy who does what he's told. You don't have in the book of Leviticus a bunch of stuff about 
going to God and getting messages. There's a little bit of it. There's the Urim and Thummim, but not a whole lot. We see the prophetic side of things when we look at Abraham. When God comes to Abraham in Genesis 18 and says what? He says, well, I have to tell Abraham what I'm going to do because he's a member of my council. And I need to consult with Abraham and find out what he says. He says, Abe, I'm thinking about destroying the cities of the plain. And what do you think? And Abraham says, well, would you destroy a city that had 50 righteous men in it? God says, no, no, I wouldn't do that. And Abraham has a right as a member of the council to advise God and to argue with him. That's a prophetic function. And that's explicitly said in the book of Amos. Amos 3. God says, look, I don't do anything without letting you know in advance. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Then for that reason, I'm going to punish you for all your iniquities. He doesn't say you can avoid it. He says, I'm going to do it. Do two men walk together unless they've made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he's captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there's no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trump is blown in the city, won't the people be afraid? Now, he's saying every time you see an effect, there's a cause. Then he says, if a calamity occurs in the city, wasn't it Yahweh who did it? And when a calamity occurs, I'm doing it. And then he says, Surely Yahweh God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Now, the prophets are the one that God reveals the secret counsel to so they can tell about it. The lion is roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So God gives his secret counsel to the prophets. As a prophet is a higher position than priest or king. A priest doesn't get the secret counsel. He just gets some marching orders. The king gets wisdom. But the prophet gets this secret counsel, and the prophet is allowed to argue back to God, and we see this in Amos 7. Thus the master Yahweh showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop came after the king's mowing. And it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land, in other words, the locusts ate everything up in this vision. I said, Master Yahweh, please pardon how can Jacob stand, for he is small, and Yahweh changed his mind about this. It shall not be, says Yahweh. Now see, that's an amazing statement. The prophet has the right to change God's mind, like Abraham did, in the sense that Abraham did argue with God and was allowed to. And Amos, as a council member standing in the council, God consults him, says, this is what I'm going to do, but invites him to take issue with it. Then Master Yahweh showed me, and behold, Master Yahweh was calling to contend with him by fire. It consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. And I said, My Master Yahweh, please stop. How can Jacob stand for you small? And Yahweh changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said my Master Yahweh. So the prophet can change God's mind about things. Thus he showed me, and behold, Yahweh was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And Yahweh said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Yahweh said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And then he says, I'm going to bring destruction on them. And Amos doesn't say anything back to that. He accepts this last form of judgment. But the point is not to try to figure out exactly what's meant by plumb line and everything else, but to show that the prophet is consulted by God. He has matured to that point. He is an elder. Jacob has been a slave like a priest, 
and he has worked and acted and fought like a king. But now, in this second phase of his life, he has to learn what it is to be a prophet. So, when Jacob is in his priestly phase, as a son, as a slave, he's learning what it means to be a king. Now he moves to this kingly phase where he's got to rule his sons, and he's going to learn what it is to be a prophet. And so where does Jacob's life end? And the story ends with him being a prophet here at the end of Genesis and prophesying regarding his sons. But now at this phase of his life, he's become a king. He must learn to be a prophet. Same with David. What does David do at the end of his life? He has this song. He has this prophecy that he gives regarding the future that's recorded for us. Just as Jacob learned how to be a king while serving as a priest, he must now learn to be a prophet by ruling as a king. Prophecy is something beyond wisdom. Recall Jacob's words to his sons after Simeon and Levi killed the men of Shechem. That's the beginning of it. He prophesies to them and says, You have made our name stink here. The future that is going to come is messed up because of you. The prophet can begin to see into the future. Genesis 49, here we see Jacob the elder, who has moved from being ruler and king to being prophet. He can see into the future. Compare Noah. Before the flood, Noah is a priest. God gives him specific instructions on the ark, the details, exactly how long it's to be and how high it's to be and how wide it's to be and how many stories it's supposed to have and how many windows it's supposed to have and where the pitch is supposed to be put to seal it on the inside and the outside, and exactly how many animals are supposed to be taken in, 14 of the clean animals and 2 of the unclean animals, exactly and precisely what he's supposed to do, down to the detail of how many cubits everything is supposed to be. And he does it. That's priestly. After the flood, God comes to him and says, from now on you can exercise capital punishment. I'm giving you much more responsibility. So he moves to this kingly phase. And after the sin of Ham, then Moses comes as a prophet and he prophesies the future. So, let's understand something here. As a priest, we learn right and wrong. Basic stuff. Give 10%. That's easy. Don't commit adultery. That's easy. You just keep your clothes on and you won't commit adultery. You won't commit fornication. It's not hard. To be a virgin on your wedding night, just keep your clothes on. If you don't, well, there you are. But it's not like these are subtle issues. <laughs> don't commit murder. Bring an unblemished sheep. Don't bring any gazelles or pigs to the altar. Those are simple things. We learn stuff there. As king, we learn subtlety and wisdom in dealing with more difficult issues in life. But from doing that, we learn how to see into the future. We learn how to evaluate trends. We learn cause and effect. And so Jacob can say, now that he has been around his sons and seen stuff, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen later on because of who you guys, this is what you've set in motion. And a prophet sets things in motion by speaking certain key words that people can't forget. He creates the future, which is what God did in the beginning. And he does it by word alone, not by action. Acting by word alone is what God did in the beginning and thus reflects man at his most mature. The man who is matured in God-likeness and he becomes an elder. If you look at Leviticus 27, you'll see that eldership, what we think of as ruling elders, would probably be around 60. 
And in the pastorate, according to Numbers 4, the Levite seems to move into an eldership at around the age 50. I think that's because in the church, your responsibilities are somewhat more limited and simple. You move to eldership faster because you're dealing with the word and sacrament. And if you're in the broader life, uh, life is more complicated. It takes a little bit longer to get to that age of 60, which uh, it says here. Now, we use the word elder more generally in the Presbyterian tradition, but if you look at the text, you'll see that these ages are divided out. And there's something about the guy that's 60 who's actually a grandfather and who's been through his priestly phase of obedience and has been through his kingly phase of dealing with life and is now somewhat retired from that, now has at the end the wisdom to begin to see into the future a bit and warn, say, hey, you do this and these will be the consequences. You don't start off when you're 8 or 9 or 20 years old understanding what the consequences are of things. You have to live before you do that. So the prophetic phase of life is the last phase of life. And of course, what Satan has done in our society is try to make everybody be young. So we reject that. You don't trust anybody over 30. Of course, the people who said that are now all over 40. So they think differently, but what do they do? Well, they try to make themselves look young. They try to act young. They try to be young. They don't want to become old. The entire society is oriented to trying to look and act and be in your teens or twenties. And that means you reject the idea of becoming an elder and having anything to say. Jacob's sons are now to be obedient priest servants with Jacob and Israel, as his new name is, as their father king. They must now learn to be kings by serving as priests first. The failure of Simeon and Levi is a failure of Israel to become good kings, as we'll see. Joseph thus becomes the wise king and rescues his brothers. With Joseph, the emphasis comes to be on prophecy and its interpretation. With Abraham, we're talking about worship at the altars. With Jacob, we're talking about dominion with these flocks and these herds. It's all kind of a kingly emphasis from the beginning. And we've moved to it now. King is someone who limps. With Joseph, right from the beginning, we're in a prophetic realm. Prophetic dreams, interpretation of prophecy. That's a whole lot more subtle. See, when God comes to you and says, look, I want you to do this, there's no interpretation involved. It's a command. But when he gives you a vision that shows you 12 constellations of the sky bowing down to another constellation, take some wisdom and interpretation. Joseph already has that at the age of 17. He has it because he's learned from his father. And he has it because the Holy Spirit gives it to him. But essentially... Even though Joseph's whole life he's a prophet, the ability of Joseph to be a prophet from an early stage of life is because he inherits from his parents. Joseph thus becomes a wise king and rescues his brothers. That takes a lot of subtlety. Remember the story, he has to get them in, scare them, and then set things up by giving a double portion to Benjamin and all this subtle stuff he does to rescue his brothers. That's the wise king. With Joseph, the emphasis comes to be on prophecy and his interpretation. He's learning more and more what it is to be a prophet. Yet Joseph doesn't prophesy. He just interprets it. It's Jacob who prophesies. Jacob becomes, after his years of kingly limping, a prophet. And he prophesies in chapter 48 and 49. Finally, the third point, Joseph serves and rules. And at the very end, he prophesies in chapter 50. 
He says, someday you'll come out from here and bring my bones with me. So again, service, ruling, and at the end, seeing into the future. Those are stages. And I wanted to put all that out. It's useful to think about in terms of our own lives. It's important to understand the progress of biblical history. And it's important to understanding this because this is a transition point in Jacob's life where he's no longer going to be wrestled with by God. He's no longer going to be in a position of obeying people over him. He's now in charge. But now he's given another complication, which is this limp, which means he's got to rule by subtlety and wisdom and not directly. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.